Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. All right, U-Turn friends, I'm bringing someone on the show who is one of my all-time favorite guests, and I think it might be her third time because I just kept asking her to come back. So it's Annie Lala. She was on episode three about um, why you haven't found lasting love. I think we did another episode. I just love her wisdom. She's a cartographer of love is what I would call her. And she has an honors science degree in biology and philosophy, and she holds professional certifications in coaching, NLP, clinical hypnosis, and her experience in education really have supported her with helping her clients really connect to their higher selves, do the self-work, and whatever needs to be done to attract and create and foster extraordinary connection and have more freedom and way less shame, which I mean, who's not here for that? So Annie, I am so excited to have you here to talk all things love, relationship dynamics and connection. Yeah, let's do it. I want to let you know that any question I'll answer. There's nothing off limits. So let's go for it. Okay. So, okay, let's start here. Let's start with what's present for me because everybody always relates to me when I'm the most honest I was just telling you, I got out of a relationship with a guy I love so much who, um, and he's pretty private, so I won't go too far into him, but he was just really working on connecting to his emotions. He has a startup. He's very busy in his career. And um, we just couldn't find ground with the amount of work he had on his plate and not having much time for a partnership. Mm. And, you know, also just his genuine work on opening up his own emotions, which is something he's working on. Um, I feel like there's so many people listening where they're in a dynamic, whether it's dating or a partnership, where one person is maybe more open or forthcoming with their emotions, and one person is a little more withdrawn with their emotions. Mm -hmm. And it feels so scary to be the one that's opening up and not feel met. And it's probably scary for the other person to open up. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is this dynamic? What can we do to navigate it? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the traditional cliche of women are where their emotions on their sleeve. You can always tell what they're feeling and men are all bottled and closed up and you can hardly know if they're upset or angry. And while that may be true, I want to just say that every human has a next level in terms of being emotionally transparent and um, honest and authentic about what's really going on inside their heart. There's a next level for everybody. Mm. And if anyone just thinks about where in their life they've had a feeling and they've not shared it, because we've all been there, we've been scared or angry and someone asks and we're like, no, it's fine. Or no, it's no big deal. There's been moments where we had a feeling, we know we have a feeling and we're not sharing it. If you look at why you're not sharing it, it always boils down to, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe to share the feeling in this context, in this situation, in this circumstance. And so it's an interesting dilemma. While it's our responsibility to make ourselves feel safe in a relationship, which I'm sure we've talked about before, it's our responsibility to generate safety in our body and not rely on our partner to make us feel safe. 
while that's true, if you're around someone who recurrently does not share their feelings, bottles them up, is stoic, isn't transparent and authentic about what's going on in their emotions, then you have to ask yourself as the person in the relationship with them, do you want access to their feelings? Mm. If the answer is yes, then the next question to ask is, do they owe it to you to share their feelings? Mm. And the answer is a big fat no. Mm. No one owes it to you to share their feelings. It's Mm. a privilege. Mm. It's a privilege, not an entitlement. And if you want that person to give you the gift of being transparent about their feelings, you have to make sure you're doing everything you can to indicate that their feelings are welcome. Mm-hmm. They're interesting to you. They're fascinating. They're going to be honored and validated. And they're not going to be shamed or made wrong or pushed back. And that's a big thing to promise because most of us can't, can't say that about other people's feelings. We, we, we can't honor a feeling in another person anger, shame, fear, overwhelm. We can't honor a feeling in another person that we don't honor in ourselves. Mm. So any feeling that we aren't deeply um, connected to and fascinated by in ourselves, we will shame unwittingly in another person. And so the thing to look at is, okay, this person's in front of me. They don't owe me their feelings. They don't owe me a report. Well, what I have to do to make it fun, easy, possible for them to share it? And that begins a developmental enterprise of you growing into another version of yourself that is characterized by the ability to make people feel safe with whatever feelings they're having, which, by the way, is a great um, characteristic for succeeding in relationships, whether you're a husband, a wife, definitely a parent, or a leadership position in in any social structure. So the question you have to ask is, is who I'm becoming in order to help this person feel safe to share their feelings? Is mm. it a more extraordinary version of myself that I'm more proud of, that's more powerful, that I can triumphantly sign my name to? And if the answer is yes, then your partner's emotional withdrawal, that brand of crazy, is actually custom crafted by the universe to force you up to your next level. Mm. I, what I love about this is there's a level of self-responsibility. But what I also get scared of with this is that people can spiritually bypass someone maybe not being right for them or someone who doesn't have the tools to actually meet them and create the right relationship for them. So how do we decide when we have to do the work and say, you know what, let me self-reflect and figure out how I can make it safer for this person versus, you know what, this person isn't a fit for me and it's not my job to grow them in this way. Like how do have those moments? Yeah, excellent question. So first you have to exhaust every tool and technology you have. So you use, you, 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 you say yes to every developmental opportunity to cultivate the ability to help them feel safe around you. Yeah. Not because you owe it to them, but because you want the privilege of getting access to their emotions. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you realize it's not working for you. The only difference between the person where it's not working for me, fuck this, I'm out of here because I don't want to do the other levels of work that'll have me develop into a more safe person. The differentiation between that and, you know what? I love them. They're extraordinary. They're where they are in their development. Uh, Deep bow to where they are in their journey. I have no mal um, judgment about them. 
and I'm going to graduate from this relationship and set them free to move through the development path and set myself free. The yeah. minute there's a that, that fucker couldn't open up their heart or they the reason we're breaking up is because they didn't. But the minute I see a grumble or a trigger and it's not kosher. That usually is an indication that there was work that was left on the table that you didn't, you weren't ready to take. And I'm not blaming you. Maybe they weren't inspiring enough to make you to want to do the work. Mm-hmm. Right? To be in love is basically to find someone who inspires you enough to do all the work that up until now you've been avoiding your whole life. Right. Yeah. And every guy I met before my husband, bless them. I love them. I have deep reverence for them. And they, the ROI for me wasn't inspiring enough to make me dig down deep into my shadow and do that work. My husband's the first one. Mm. And so, you know, while there's many definitions of love, one of my least glamorous definitions is whoever's worth the suffering. Because mm. they're suffering. Because you've got to transform all kinds of habits. And that takes work. But it's developmental work. It's like the same kind of suffering you have on the last three reps on the gym machine when you're doing a rep, you know, a barbell lift. Mm-hmm. Is it suffering? But it's developmental suffering. Right. That's such a good distinction. And I feel like it's almost like, um, I I don't know why this is coming up, but when I wrote my book, my biggest fear was, is everything I have to say going to make it onto the page? And it it was like such a big opportunity. I was like, I truly want my soul to make it onto here because this is my thing I want to do. And I don't want to die with this music in me, like get it out of me. And I really felt like Everything made it on the page the best I could at that time. And now when I get criticism for it, I feel so liberated because there's no part of me that feels like I really could have done much better. I did my best. Yeah. And I feel like with relationship, that can be the case. It's like, I got to let all my music out with this one and and do the work with this one. And if you're still feeling discouraged um, or like it's just complete for you, I get that. I think there's also people who have had relationships where maybe they reach that neutral moment where they're like, okay, I'm clear that I can't do this anymore. And it's this clear, calm, awareness. Grounded truth. Yeah. Yes. But they could still look back in time. And I think this is quite common and be like, oh, that guy sucked or that girl sucked or whoever sucked. And it's not like they're angry and charged up, but they just see some of the dynamics and they're like, that was so unhealthy for me. Why? Almost like they're mad at themselves. There it is. But there it is. So uh, that person was mean and asshole sucked, was underdeveloped. That whole phraseology can be converted into, it really hurt when they wouldn't talk to me. It really hurt when they yelled at me. That's actually the truth. But we are uncomfortable sharing that it really hurt because that's open the kimono vulnerable. And we what we do instead is talk about how they're bad and wrong. And so, the, I mean, blaming is part of the human game. I'm not trying to moralize around blaming. But yeah. if you could convert all blames in your, that you give to others and that you hear others give to you, all blames are code for that hurt. <laughs> and um, I wish that didn't happen. And I feel scared or I feel ashamed or I feel confused. That's what's underneath the blame. And I think it's just more honest if we could go to the place where we're saying I'm hurt. Mm. So helpful. And I think like ultimately it's, it's interesting. Like when I actually, when you were coaching me and I left a relationship that wasn't healthy. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, like right now I'm crying because I'm letting go of this person, but eventually I'm going to be crying because I let myself endure some of these things that are just so not self-honoring. Yes. 
And um, it's it's interesting because sometimes we look outward like, oh, somebody owes us a big apology for being an asshole when really it's we were not nice to ourselves. Yeah. Um, and we co-created that dance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you graduate from a relationship and I really like to call it graduation because you it was all a school and mm-hmm. you leave your university with a diploma and, with education and every relationship you leave with education. So it's a success. It's never a failure. Um, we are. We often try to demonize the other person in order to cope. Right. But the truth is, once you start loving someone, you always love them. You may not want to live with them forever or have babies with them or marry them, but you always love them once you start. Right. And so if you demonize someone that you love, what happens is the part of you that loves them gets demonized inside of you and you end up turning in on yourself, which reduces your Mm self-esteem. And so I find it not useful to demonize someone in order to get over them. It's mm. better to remember the beauty and the poetry of the relationship and everything you learned about it and to grieve that the agony of that being lost and properly move through the process rather than doing kind of a bypass or a shortcut right. and just demonizing because you end up just turning it into self-loathing. Right. Demonizing another ends up being some form of self-loathing that you won't track, but will reduce your self-esteem. Right. I so I so see that. Okay. I also and, know- and the quality of your breakup. Your last yeah. breakup governs the success of your next relationship. Right. So you want to break up in a way that you can sign your name to triumphantly. Right. Like a little cosign. I also want to ask about exiting. I think a mm-hmm. lot of people, um, maybe people who are more avoidant, they tend to face an issue with somebody and say, I'm out. Like mentally they exit, physically they exit. Maybe physically they're like, I'm going on a vacation for a week. Um they kind of go offline or maybe somebody's dating somebody new. I actually want to ask you about this one. Dating somebody new, it's going incredibly well. And then they kind of disappear a little bit. Um, Like it's just, it's just this form of avoidance or exiting where you feel really close and connected. And then maybe there's something coming up for someone. And this happens in partnership all the time. Totally. Seeing this Um, even in, you know, marriages where it's like one person's kind of in one kind of out. So how do we, how do we navigate that? Because I think sometimes what I found is some people who tend to exit, it's really their intuition saying to them, this is not right for you. And you actually do have to go. And then some people who exit, it's like, no, you're just having a gut response and you need to learn how to commit and put your feet in some, both feet in something. So I want to speak to both of those people, like the intuitive, smart person that's not doing it. And the person that's got to put both feet in. Yeah. It's a tricky distinction, but here's the heuristic. A truth is true all the time. So if this person, as amazing as they are, is wherever they are on their journey, if they're not a match for you romantically, then you you don't want to trust your, I need to peace out of this when you're triggered or angry. But if you're happy sitting on the sofa, cuddling, making dinner, going for a walk in the park, and underneath the happy-go-lucky surface, there's just a low level, this isn't right for me. Without anger, without trigger, just even in the most happy times, when someone's really not right for you, you feel that truth all the time. Some, sometimes it's stronger when they're doing the crazy and it's triggering you. But even when things are going well, there's a low level, just under consciousness, hum of, I'm not happy. This isn't right. This doesn't feel like it's a portal to my greatness. I don't think we're a match. And so I, I tell my clients, I don't want you to leave a relationship or break up unless you're having that thought, that refrain all the time, through thick, through thin, through good, through bad, then I trust it. 
I don't trust if it's just coming up when you're angry. Well, it's confusing because some people can hang out with people, even if it's their partner in life, and they feel so good. It's like the sun is shining on them when they're together. But there's something about the dynamic or connection that when they're not together, it doesn't feel good. There's a what do you mean when they're not together? Like like maybe away? the person's away or it's the work day or there's like something around the communication in the yeah. in the in life. Some people yeah. are long distance, right? Um, you some people's partners travel all the time for work. There's something about when they're gone, they feel so gone, and when they're there, it feels so good. So it's it's almost like there's two truths that they're battling. Like this version works and this version isn't working. And the whole climate of the relationship isn't feeling good because the thing that's not working is painful. So like, is it a communication thing? You know what I mean? Because I was just telling you, like in dating, like meeting somebody amazing and they're so on it and then they're gone when they're gone. And I really don't like how that feels. Yeah, there it is. And I really don't like how that feels. Yeah. This is totally on an intuitive hit. I yeah. have to find out more. But what I'd want to do is help you develop the ability to not take that personally, not have that undermine the the beauty or the truth of your relationship. And when they leave, to notice that you thinking that doesn't feel so good is actually a function of uh, maybe, you know, an anxious pattern yeah. or some some pattern in you that has you need a certain amount of communication or affection. Um, it doesn't mean you can't ask for it, but you want to ask for it from a place of, I can handle it if you don't give it to me, but this would nourish the system. It's, it's the difference between on New Year's Eve where you're like waiting for the champagne to pop because you need the alcohol. I need the alcohol versus someone who's like, oh, it's New Year's Eve. I can drink the champagne or not. Now, both people drinking the champagne look the same to the camera. One's an alcoholic and is scanning for the bottle moving around the room. And one's like, oh, I, I didn't even get a food of champagne. They're, they're not attached. There's no death grip. And mm. so I'm trying to always reduce the sniff, the feeling of the death grip on needing something in order to feel okay. Mm-hmm. Whenever I smell a death grip in any partner, mm-hmm. that's their development work to do. So we work to the place where they don't have the death grip. And then once they're cool and grounded and casual about it, then then I can say, how could you invite or entice or inspire your partner into giving you this? And they're way more likely to give it to you because you don't have the death grip around it. Mm-hmm. Because you're basically, what the death grip basically means, I can't regulate myself. I can't create safety for myself. I need someone else to do something to make me feel okay, which mm-hmm. means you're disempowered and you're not goddessing. You're not in your highest self. So mm-hmm. I want to help the woman get to her highest self and then carve and inspire what she wants in her partner. Right. And they're way more likely to do it. And if they don't from that inspired uh, invitation, yeah. then, then maybe they're not a match and it's time to graduate. Yeah. I love what you're saying. It's kind of in a series of steps. It's like, okay, step one, self-resource, like step two, inspire the other person to like take responsibility for how you can co-create with somebody. And then step three, feel the climate there. Like, is it neutralized or is the truth still loud and clear? Um, I think a lot of people also like in their relationship, they don't necessarily, there's always one person it feels like, I mean, not always, but that I don't, they don't feel seen. They don't feel like they're getting the love that they really need. And it's really hard to watch where that just might be like the recurring theme. And when they look back in the past year or two, five, that's just what the relationship is. This is who the person is. And this is who you are. And you plus them equals this outcome. And 
can you take it or can you not? And I think ultimately what I've learned is like everyone wants to be seen. Everybody has that basic need for connection. Um, and it was interesting. What, yeah. oh, oh, talk to me. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, what I'd want to check with the person who says they don't feel seen in their relationship. In my experience, most of the time when someone says they don't feel seen or they don't feel, yeah, they don't feel seen, it's actually a crisis of their own internal attention on their needs and wants that needs to be upgraded. And once they feel seen by themselves, which is a whole process of development and self-esteem, the need for the external reference of being seen diminishes then they like being seen, but they don't need it anymore to feel valued and important. And so I always want to help them develop that first. And then it either eliminates the compulsion to need to be seen by someone else or that need to be seen by someone else. They can take it or leave it. It's not a deal breaker. So I I always want to make sure that we're not using our partners to supplement Mm -hmm. an internal form of self-care that's available for us, that we're not subcontracting that out to our partner. Mm. I also, you know, as I'm thinking about all of these dynamics, um, what's really poignant for me, and I would love to look at this with you because it was really, really influenced me was just this week, I had a very dear friend I haven't talked to in years. And I just love this girl. Like we could not judge her if I tried because she's just so great. And we haven't caught up in forever. She's from my national security counterterrorism days. So like, I've not seen that girl since I was walking in a sack, potato sack, silk dress at the Pentagon. Um, And it really influenced me to hear her voice and be like, how are you? And so much has happened for her. She got married, you know, which I knew she was married 10 years and now they're getting a divorce. And I asked what happened and she ended up having an affair and I had absolutely no judgment on her for that. Because she's such a good girl and she felt so human. So she basically told me this. She said, look, I've been with him for 10 years. We have a three-year-old. I love her to the moon. I love my partner, my husband. But I've been telling him for years that I keep feeling this feeling of like, I got the job. I got the house. The interior decorator's here. We got the kid. We get along, you know. Is this all there is? Like he, she felt this emptiness in her day-to-day life. And some of it is probably a self job, like her filling herself back up. But some of it felt like her relationship too. She just kind of felt like there wasn't any sense of adventure between them. And she was always asking him, can we, can we go have some adventures, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually she fell in love with a coworker. And I couldn't even be like, having any judgment on her because it feels so human when you feel kind of dead inside to feel love and to want to feel connection. And it just happened. And now she's, you know, navigating, leaving her marriage and being with her coworker who she's totally in love with. And it made me realize that like commitment is, and we already know this commitment's really hard, but we all want to feel loved. And when we're not feeling that for too long, yes, we need to do the work on ourselves, but it feels very real. And I heard somebody say more than 50% of people cheat on their partner, have an affair. So I don't know if you know that stat or what stat you're seeing. Can you talk a little bit about how do we start to notice these openings, whether if we're in a relationship and, and how do we know when we just need to turn inwards with our partner versus like, Hey, I actually do think there's nothing wrong here. This just isn't what I want. Because I think that's the hardest thing is when there's no real problem. Yeah. You know, I don't have any moralizing or judgment on the affair. I think 
this might get me into trouble, but I think fears are, affairs are unconscious collaborations between both partners. Mm. And I don't have, I'm not into victim blaming. I, I don't have perpetrators or victims. Right. Everybody's reality makes sense if you get into their world. And um, an affair is just a desperate attempt to shift the system that's not working. I don't know if it's the best one or the most useful. I, I don't have a judgment on it. People have to figure that out for themselves. But it's the only one they saw given where they were at. Mm. It's not like they saw five different options and they're like, I think I'll take the most damaging one. Mm -hmm. It's the best one they can see. People always choose the best option available in the option array. Mm -hmm. And I, if she's in love, fantastic. You know, maybe the little girl can have two families and I'd much rather the girl have the little girl be, have modeled what love looks like right? Um, her parents than to have two parents who feel kind of dead inside. Um, you know, if, if she really wanted the relationship to work, which maybe she didn't, which I honor. Yeah. Having an affair is one way out. But I would, I would hope that she exhausted everything, like coming to him and saying, I feel dead. I'm noticing I'm having thoughts about an affair. Like having more of the play-by-play. -play. Yeah. But, you know, if she can look back and say, I really did the best I could. Right. Which is what you were talking about. And she can sign her name triumphantly to it. Then right. power to her. That was the best she could. Right. If she has shame or lament about shoulda, coulda, wouldas, there's no judgment of it, but it just means that her own self-esteem will be reduced until that gets cleared, until she finds a way to process that. And so I would want her to feel the most empowered as she goes on into a relationship um, so that she could build something amazing and, and have a great family for the daughter. Mm. Um, but you were asking about how do we deal with feeling dead in the relationship and like, yeah. People yeah. feel kind of this feeling, this gnawing ache of like, okay, nothing's really wrong. We go to the same restaurant on Fridays. Like we have a beautiful kid or whatever their, their dream was that they achieved. And then they feel like, is this all there is? And I feel like being 36 feels so different for me than when I was like 26, which obviously it should, but there's something about like in your twenties, you have this fantasy of like, this is what I want my life to be. And in a lot of ways, I've created my fantasy and I'm grateful for that. But there's these other ways where as you start to age, your skin isn't as tight. You got to work a little harder at the gym or whatever. Your, you, you know, your beauty might fade in some way, according to you, or you got all this stuff and you still don't feel that feeling of like, good. I know that that's an inner job, but it's so hard to tell. And sometimes it's an outer job, you know? So I want to assist people listening yeah. with, when do we know it's time for ourselves to course correct within versus when do we know it's time to move to a new city, break up with that person, change gyms, you know, whatever. So all of that is an inside job, like change city, break up, get to go to a new gym. Those are all actions that emerge organically out of an internal inquiry. Mm -hmm. So it's always an inside job. And sometimes when you tune into your actual feelings and the ache and the heartbreak and the despair and the pain that's happening in your body, not the story about the feeling, which involves reasons, explanations, justifications, shame, blame, make wrong of either someone else or yourself. So that's the story about the feeling. But if you actually turn in and, and sit with your own feelings privately and interview them and hang out with them, they will always indicate an action. Mm. And that action is always in service of your next level of development. And so everything starts on the inside and then comes out. Right. So that's one 
answer. This might be controversial to say, but I I, think the most important skill you can develop as a human is to look at the batshit crazy full of chaos reality that's unfurling in front of you mm -hmm. and to find ways to systematically fall in love with what's so. Mm -hmm. That ain't easy. Mm -hmm. Eckhart Tolle calls it, you know, being in the present moment. I call it nowing. Baron Katie calls it falling in love with what's so. Everybody's selling this, some version Mm -hmm. of how to dance with the reality that's occurring in a way that has you feel empowered. Mm -hmm. So that is what's on the menu at all times. Mm -hmm. When you fully engage with reality, when you can look at your partner and be like, wow, you're just a miracle. You have all this poetry and beauty and we've learned so much. And from all this love and this appreciation and the dance that we're doing would better serve both of us if you dance off this way and I dance off this way. And there's no shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Like to me, that's trustable. And so you always want to make changes in your life from a grounded, regulated state, not in order to be regulated right? I'm upset. If I break up with you, then I'll feel better. I'd rather you feel better in the relationship and learn how to dance with this. I mean, abuse aside, and well, even with abuse, the reason someone's abusing you is because some part of you has unwittingly allowed, tolerated, and unwittingly trained them to keep doing it. So your job as the when you're in a relationship and things aren't working for you, you have to look at where did I unwittingly um, coach train my partner to treat me this way. Mm. Not that it's your fault to be treated that way. It's not about fault. It's about giving you back your power. Mm. Where can I desist from tolerating it? Where can I desist from um, enabling it? Mm -hmm. How can I start standing for myself? And Mm -hmm. if you start doing the hard work, of standing for yourself and asking for your needs and wants and not being apologetic about it and really believing that your needs and wants have dignity, mm-hmm. then you grow a skill that either grows your partner into someone who can meet it or they can't. And then you can graduate, but you might as well practice the skill inside the relationship before leaving because you're going to have to learn how to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that'll either reinvent the relationship or the other person will be dis- you know, lose interest because you're too much work or you will no longer feel like this is nourishing to you. And then you can uncouple or graduate in a way that conserves everyone's dignity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I also know that like a lot of life is not about finding the right thing. It's about saying no to the wrong thing so that you have space for the right thing. And, um, it's it's interesting because for me, I, I wrote a whole book about the truth. I'm committed to it the best I can. I'm still a human, so doing my best. But I feel like there's a lot of moments where I'm like, okay, I think I hear the voice in my head that's telling me the smart thing. I don't think I need to do like a self-work thing. I think I just feel something. You can hear like- the voice in your head. I would encourage people who are listening to their truth. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe you mean this and you're taking a shortcut, yeah. but I wouldn't go for the voice in your head. I would interview your Womb, your pussy, or your heart. (laughs) Seriously, just anything that's not the head. It's more trustable. Mm. Sometimes your head is speaking on behalf of your heart and your pussy in your womb. But just going to your womb or your pussy or your heart, the process of interviewing that part 
gives you a much higher likelihood that you will be listening to your intuition. So your intuition is your future successful self whispering to you what to do next. Mm -hmm. And the only way to access intuition is through the body. You Mm -hmm. can't think it. So that's why I'm saying if you want to get access to your future successful self through the whispers, pussy, belly, womb, chest. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, let's say we do heart. Like, I feel like a lot of people, they're going to be like, my heart's telling me that I want this thing, but it hurts and it's not been feeling good for me. So I feel like sometimes it's like the heart's confusing for a lot of people. Like, oh, I, I really want this career or I really want this person, but this career makes me work 80 hours a week and it turns me into a monster or this person isn't really that emotionally available. They have one hour a week to hang out with me. And so my heart, like, oh, the connection. But I know that a connection is not a relationship. A relationship is when two people are investing and building an actual castle out of something versus just connecting and having this electricity. So how do we- And the relationship is when the heart and the body and the mind all align and say, Mm -hmm. this is a portal for a next level of growth and development for me. And I want to highlight this because you said, remember this friend who's like, is this all, we've got the house, we've got the kid. Yes. So the idea that we've got the house, we've got the kid, we've got some things that tick box that we should be fulfilled. We need to disavow ourselves of that narrative completely. That's not what relationship is. Relationship Mm -hmm. is finding your favorite teacher who's courageous and crazy and broken enough that (laughs) their particular brand of crazy forces you to develop and grow to your next level. So it's a transformational crucible for your personal development. Mm. If someone is seeing relationship as the the most important transformational workshop you're ever going to be in in your entire life, and like every workshop, Landmark or Lifespring, Lifespring or whatever, Hoffman, the point of the workshop is to bring a mirror to show you your beauty, your intelligence, your magnificence, and all the places you're hiding, all the places where your behavior are not aligned with your values. Whenever there's a gap between values and behavior, your self-esteem is reduced. The the smaller the gap between values and behavior, the higher your self-esteem. So Mm -hmm. these workshops are there to show you that. So what do you think a partner is? They're there to show you that. And so nobody I know who's committed to the personal growth relationship as personal growth path has the thought, is this all there is? Mm -hmm. What they have is, fuck, this is some hard-ass work. Yeah. Now, let me think about it. Is the joy and the personal growth and the development, the ROI, worth the suffering? And they make a calculation. And as long as it's 51% or higher, most of the time, you're in. Yeah. It's not 99%. Sometimes my dynamic with my husband feels like it's literally 51%. This is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's 99 mm-hmm. But it, you know, net, it never goes under 51. And so that's what you're looking for. Is is this, is my, what I'm getting out of this development wise, not it's a spa and I feel loved exactly as I am and I never have to change. It's a personal growth um, opportunity, but you want a partner that's both a, a trampoline for your dreams and your growth and your development to your next level, but also a sanctuary for your heart. Right. You want to be loved exactly as you are and fiercely stood for your next level of development both, but, and in that order. Mm, okay. I'm, I'm loving hearing this and I'm also reflecting, and I feel like I've asked you something of this nature before, and it's probably just like forever. My question to you, yeah. which is like, 
the ugly growth versus the pretty growth. Like, like sometimes people's entire relationship turns into this like portal of processing and pain. And it's like, are they growing? Yeah, but it's brutal to watch. And I know that sometimes you got to pay your dues and pay the tax, you know, but I know that some people growth is a little more flowy. It's like we're growing and it's effort. Yeah. And- so I think you have to find a partner that matches that. Like some people go to the gym and they're Schwarzenegger, right? Yeah. Like, mm, mm. And then there's like, I go twice a week and I do my yoga and Pilates. And then there's everything in between. Some people just walk for 20 minutes in the morning. It's You have to find a partner that has the same um, level of commitment to evolution and the style. Yeah. And no one's better than the other. It's, I think of it as like spice in my food. I like chili peppers on everything. Pizza, mm-hmm. anything. I just give me some chilies. <laughs> some people, they just want like black pepper is too much for them. And so certain couples are kind of addicted or like the feeling of spice and intensity. And, oh, we had a drama. And, oh, we had this intensity. And some couples are like mashed potatoes and green beans. They don't spice anything up. And that's okay for them. As long as you and your partner can find a bandwidth where you can dance together through the evolutionary process, I think you're fine. It's right. There's no right or wrong amount. Mm. Okay. That's really helpful. I think it's, there's something so subjective about that. It's contextual. It's like, it's about energy matches. And sometimes balance looks like 70% you 30% me. So I imagine that it's really not about, it's about looking at the, not the weather that's coming into the relationship, but the overall climate of the, of the relationship. Is there that? And getting that you create the climate, right? Become causal of the climate. Most of us are like, Oh, it's going to rain. I'm at the mercy of the rain. Very few people track that they create the climate. And so once you realize that you create the climate, you can start creating designer climates. Now that'll take some development work and breaking of patterns, but what's the point of the relationship? And so, and I really want women to get this because no, I don't know if your your listeners are mostly women, but women run whether the relationship works or not. Mm. In the world, mammal, in the mating world, mammals, males display, here's my peacock feathers, here's my horns, here's me leaping across the rivers. That's what the deer do. The males display, look at my fancy signaling, you want to mate with this, and then the females choose. Mm. The sperm all go, pick me, pick me, and the egg sits on her throne. The sperm goes to the egg, by the way, just note. <laughs> and she interviews each sperm. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. Mm-hmm. The woman chooses. She chooses which man gets in and she chooses whether the relationship works or not. And some women are unaware of this. And even if a woman is broken up with, what's actually going on is she wasn't happy in the relationship. Some part of her wanted out. She didn't know how to break up herself. So she subcontracts it out to the guy. It doesn't fool me. So Mm -hmm. women actually have the power to create the relationship in any direction they want. And it's up to them whether the ROI is worth it. But make no mistake, it's in their power Mm. to to forge a new path. Mm. They're the relationship leader is what I'm saying. I think that's so interesting to hear and like so refreshing to remember for so many people. Um, A lot of times the women are looking for a daddy figure to lead because we always like our daddy to lead. But what a man's looking for is a woman to lead their family into the future. He's Whether he wants to have kids or not, the unconscious evolutionary imperative is, will she be a great mother that can lead our family into success? Right. And so if you're looking for a daddy leader to, fig- to, to, to follow, 
and he's looking for a mother to lead the family into the future, um, you got to get that you are the leader and you decide whether he gets to mate with you or not. So you are the leader and you're in the power. And I think a lot of women forget that they're in that power and they abdicate Mm -hmm. from creating the relationship they want because they're Mm -hmm. busy waiting on what he wants. Mm. They don't know what to do in a relationship. Like I'm generalizing heteronormatively with the men, but there's usually a me person and a we person. Mm-hmm. And that that's the polarity in healthy relationships. Sometimes the we person is the woman and the me person is the man. Sometimes it's inverted, but you need both in order to succeed. Mm-hmm. And the we person is the visionary leader of the us. Why? Because they're guarding the we. Yeah. One person's guarding individuality and selfhood and one's guarding connection and communion and you need both. Mm -hmm. It's so good to remember that. And I know that a lot of people in the we, me dynamic are feeling like, okay, it's a little too much me over here. Let's get the we going or, or vice versa. How do we inspire somebody who's more of a me person? Like it's about them and I can totally over function and like make everybody else's life easy and drive to them. And I do that in my friendships sometimes. That's like the one talk I've had in my friendships is like, I always come to you, like offer to come to me. It's too hard for me to ask you. Um, How do we inspire the me person to start to become more of a we? Is this like a time thing? No, there's an easy way, uh, the fastest way to do it. And I've tried all the ways. The fastest way, if you're a we person, to get your partner to do more us-hood and less eyeing mm-hmm. is for you to start meing. Mm. So think of it like this. Think of it like there's a quota in every couple. There's a meer and a weir, okay? Mm-hmm. And the universe gives you a quota of like 50 kilojoules of me-hood that right. you get to use up. If you, as the empathic we, we person, if you use some of that, and assert your needs and wants and stand up for yourself and say, no, that doesn't work for me. And say, hey, I want you to come drive to my house tonight. Could you pick me up from the airport? When you use some of the me kilojoules that the universe gives you, there's less left for the other person. Right. So then they start weeing. And it's beautiful because your developmental path as a we person is to become more of a me person, which is why you're attracted to a me person. You're attracted to your favorite teacher in the domain that you most need to develop in order to be whole and integrated. Mm. And so you hire a, a me person to teach you how to me. And the more you me, the more they we. Mm-hmm. It's like a law of physics. And what's beautiful is both of you start becoming whole and integrated because you're developing your underdeveloped skills. You're, you're there to cross-train each other. I love that awareness. It's so useful. And I feel like um, it's interesting because for somebody who's very collectivistically focused, it's got to be so uncomfortable to be like, I'm all about me now. and this Or just is- once, just yeah. one out of every three times you have a thought about what someone could do for you. You might say it one out of every three times. You don't have to do it every time. It's a slow growth path. But like something as simple as like you're sitting on the sofa, you could get up and get a glass of water for yourself, but you'd really be delighted if your partner got it for you. Mm-hmm. Even that might be a developmental challenge. I have to, you know, I might give the homework next time for three times this week. I want you to want something from the kitchen or the bedroom, and I want you to ask someone else to do it for you, even though you could do it, even though it's an inconvenience for them. Just try it. No one's going to die. And just that getting them to practice with small little self affirming um, actions that indicate 
I'm important. Yeah. I'm just as important as anyone else in the room. So we've got to start breeding that as a practice. Mm. We train our partners how to treat our needs by how we treat them. They're watching. Mm. This is so, such a beautiful conversation. Is there anything I haven't asked you about love? I mean, obviously you're, you have so many thoughts, but that you feel like is important to cap this conversation for everybody. You know, as a conflict resolution coach, I'm often hearing a partner complain about the other, and that's normal because they're frustrated and overwhelmed. And I have a lot of patience and compassion for it. But if I could give one piece of nu a nugget of gold to every person who's ever in a conflict with their partner, it would be this. Everything you can't stand in your partner, everything that they do that's crazy or suboptimal or wound-driven or unconscious pattern, everything in your partner that you can't stand has an equal counterpart in you, has a symmetrical counterpart in you. You can't see it because it's in your blind spot, but your partner can. So as much grumbles and frustrations you have with them, they have exactly equal grumble and frustrations towards you. They may show it in different ways. They may complain about it or not. But just to know this, as someone who watches relationships as an observer, I've now learned it's a law of physics, hmm. that it's always equal, the amount of crazy in one partner as in the other. And only someone outside who's coaching them can see it. And I see it so clearly now that even when I see a crazy in my husband and I'm like, he's definitely wrong. He's definitely doing something suboptimal. I now know because of the law of physics, where is the thing in me that is equally as crazy that's dancing with his piece of shadow? And then I go looking for it. And then when I find it, I work on shifting that. And then his shadow or crazy shifts in response. So you get a two for one. Mm. So the, the, the message I'm saying is, if you can look for the piece of shadow in you that's dancing with your partner's crazy and it's always there, if you can't find it, keep looking. And if you don't know how to find it, ask your partner because they know it. Once you find out what the two pieces of shadows, the interlocking crazies are, work on yours. Theirs will change. I know you don't think it'll change, but it will change. And then you get a two for one upgrade. Mm, so good. Thanks, Annie. Where can everybody find you? I know we've had you on before, but for those who this is their first pass with you. Yeah, so I'm at AnnieLala.com, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A.com. There's lots of free stuff on my website. I've just started a relationship coaching program called Heart Coach, where I train people with the technology and modalities that I use to help conflict resolution. That's called Heart Coach. So if anyone's interested, join my tribe at AnnieLala.com, and, and you'll just get a whole bunch of free stuff, my latest Instagram videos, my latest YouTube stuff, because um, I just like to share whatever I learn as I learn it. Mm. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.